Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We live in a world where there's a very low view of marriage. In fact, I looked up the current, current marriage rate in Australia and Roughly as it stands now, it is 4.5 marriages per thousand people in Australia. 4.5 marriages for every thousand people. It's a very small number. In fact, that number has just steadily been going down and down and down and down. And what we can see from that, even in this country of ours, is that less and less people want to get married because they don't have a very good view of marriage. They don't see it as important. And in some sense, you can understand why. Because for a godless world, if they think everything came about through evolution, it just sort of came about, and there is no God in the picture, then, ma- then marriage is simply that is something that is made up by man. It's an institution that... Somehow, at some point, man made up. They don't see it as an institution that God has established. And so because of that, they don't see the importance of it. And in fact, even those who do get married in that small percentage, you know, even there, it's not just purely the man and the woman who are getting married. No, there's, there's Man and man getting married, woman and woman getting married, and and every other distortion of what God has ordained marriage to actually be. And in fact, even when it comes to sexual relationships, you know, there are sexual relationships that are pursued outside of marriage. Because again, if everything just simply came about, God is not there in the picture, who's to decide what's right and wrong? It's just man. It's just whatever man thinks is right. So if man says, oh, I feel this way, uh, I feel strongly about this person, regardless of what it is, I'm just going to have those uh, sexual relations with that person. In fact, even in the church, I would argue that you know, the, the view of marriage is diminishing. If you think of the number of people that are... Um, often getting divorced for no, even non-biblical reasons. Just saying, oh, you know, we've just had it after 20 years and now we're just going to get divorced. When you hear about extramarital affairs, when you hear about singles engaging in uh, sexual relationships even before they're getting, ma- getting married. And even for those who say they have a biblical view of marriage, they focused, you know, for some of those people, what they focus on in their marriage after they get married is on perhaps some fun things and just uh, doing some things just like the world and trying to make it work. And while that might sustain them for a while, when the, when the pressures of life come in, when the difficulties of life and the trials come in, suddenly the marriage is under great tension and stress and they don't know what to do. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. Perhaps your marriage is in a lot of trouble. 
and you don't know what to do. I want to offer you hope from what we're going to look at this morning from God's word. Or maybe you are single, uh, but you have a desire to get married. I pray that this message will spur you on to become more Christ-like so that when that other person comes into your life that you can be the kind of spouse that God wants you to be. Maybe you have the gift of singleness. Then I pray that as you see the goodness of marriage from this text that we will look at, that you would understand what it is and you would encourage those around you who are married and want to get married about the goodness of marriage from God's word. Maybe you bear the wounds of a, of a bad marriage and now it's a thing in the past. I pray that you would be encouraged once again as you are reminded of the goodness of the institution of marriage that God has set up. Or maybe you're doing good and your marriage is doing good. And I pray that this message would spur you on to continue to be faithful to cultivate that good marriage and honor the Lord. This morning we're going to look at the very first marriage of the first man and the first woman. Just by way of reminder, last week we looked at the fact that Adam was created in a perfect world. He was put in this garden that was on top of a mountain, which was, um, so to speak, the capital of the world, where there was the source of life, the tree of life, and the, the river, of, river of life that flowed out as four different rivers into the four corners of the world. We saw that a few weeks ago. And, and he's living in this wonderful, perfect garden on top of this mountain. And yet God looks at the man as he's alone and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. And we saw in God's wisdom how God then brings the animals one by one to Adam. And Adam, as he starts to look at the animals and observe the animals and the nature of these animals and starts to name them, he begins to realize that these animals are not anything like him. They're lesser creatures. They're not made in the image of God like him. And so just like God made the assessment that it is not good for man to be alone, there is a sense in which Adam is now aware of his aloneness and that it is not good. And we saw again last week that God puts the man to sleep and God goes to work where he takes from the side of the man perhaps rib and some flesh or some kind of bone from the side and some flesh and makes the woman. And that's where we ended off last week. And here now we will look at how this first marriage will take place. We'll look at what this first marriage looked like. By way of outline, my first point is, is the response to marriage how God responds to this woman that God has brought to Adam. And we'll look at that in verse 23. 
It says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, until this point, it is God who has been speaking. This is now the first recorded human speech. And really, this is, it is beautiful poetry. It's Adam's love song, if you want to call it. When he sees his bride for the first time. And you can almost sense the, the excitement and the joy in Adam's words. In fact, you don't see it as much in the English translation because it smoothed out this uh, with, um, by saying she. But really, in this verse 23, three times Adam says, this one. It, it, it really should read, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one is taken out of man. It's almost like Adam's jumping up and down with excitement, and he's, he's going all googly-eyed. You know, as he, as he sees the woman, and he's, he's pointing at the woman, and he says, Oh, this one, this one, as opposed to any of the other animals that I've seen before. And notice at the start of the beginning of this beautiful song and poetry, he says, this at last. Remember, Adam spent, you, you know, a good chunk of the day just naming the animals and realized how lonely he was, that he didn't have a suitable helper fit for him. And now when God brings the woman to Adam, he's totally excited, almost love-struck, you, can, you could even think of that. He didn't have this kind of response when God brought the animals to him. But now that the woman is brought to him, he recognizes that this creature corresponds to him. This one at last, this one, this one, this one corresponds to me. And, and look at how Adam expresses his excitement and love in this he says, this one at last is bone of my bone and, and flesh of my flesh. You know, this, this idea of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, it's, the he, it's a Hebrew expression uh, which communicates the idea that, that we are family. You know, in Genesis 29, 14, when Laban sees Jacob, he says this to him, where he says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. He's saying, we are the same people. We are family, you and I. In Judges 9-2, the, the leaders of Shechem, they, they say this, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. We are the same, we are family. Second Samuel 5, 1, when all the tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron, uh, they say this, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. 
We are one people. We are family. So in the Hebrew, this expression, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, it's a way of saying we belong to the same family. Much like we would say in the English now that you and I are of the same blood. Talking about family relations. In fact, some commentators even say that the expression bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, even has the idea of then pledging allegiance because we are one people, because we're the same family. I'm pledging my allegiance to you. So then when you think about this, when Adam is saying, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, on the one side, he's saying, this woman literally is part of me. She's she's taken from my flesh and my bone. But even more so, Adam is saying of the woman, you are the same as me. You are my family, unlike any of those animals out there. And I'm, I'm pledging my allegiance to you. In a sense, this is Adam's consent. His I do in the marriage. As the bride is brought before him, he says, I do. I accept you. I am in this. I desire to get married to you. And I pledge my allegiance to you. And Adam even explains this allegiance, this this connection that they have, uh, a little bit more. Notice what he says in the second half of verse 23. He says, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, Adam here is using similar sounding words in his impromptu song, his love song, to show how the two of them are connected. We see a little bit in this in the English where you have woman and in that term itself you you have and man. There's a a similar soundingness in there. But it's in Hebrew it's even more clear. It's isha for the woman and ish for the man. You know, previously in Genesis 2, we saw that God created the man from the ground. That he, God created Adam from the Adama to show Adam's connection to the ground. That he will finally work the ground and finally when he dies, he will return to the ground. But now here, the words used Uh, Isha for the woman and Ish for the man, different words. And what it's showing is how the man and the woman are now connected to each other, that they are similar. The woman alone has a special connection with the man, as opposed to all the other animals that he has just named. He doesn't have that kind of connection with those animals. And just as a side note, I would say this. Again, this is an argument against evolution. I mean, think about it. Adam names all the animals and finds no helper suitable for him. But as soon as he sees the woman, 
And he understands that they are similar and connected in contrast to the animals. You say, um, so what? The significance is this. Adam, while naming the animals, if everything happened by evolution, if Adam and Eve simply evolved from animals, then whatever the the, the previous monkey or the ape ancestor that he had, it would seem illogical then, even rude for Adam, to simply look at them as all the other animals were brought to them, where he would say, oh, I have no connection with them. I have no similarity with them whatsoever, even though they were just the previous generation. You see, the reason why Adam's response is so full of excitement and joy is because there's a significant difference in what he sees now in front of him as opposed to all the other animals. Nothing else over there corresponds to him except for this woman. He recognizes that She is Isha, just as I am Ish. And by the way, Adam, by naming her woman, it's also an act of authority. We looked at that last week, and we've looked at that act of naming is an act of authority. And it's hinting at the fact that Adam is the head of his wife. And the implications of this become even more clear when we look in the next chapter when God is going to hold Adam responsible for the fall because he is supposed to be the head of the family. So that's Adam's response to the woman. He's excited, overjoyed, and bursts into a love song as he sees this woman that is presented to him, saying that, oh, they they are of the same essence. They are connected and they are bound together. And in a sense, he is pledging allegiance to the woman. He says, I do to the woman that God has just presented to him. God now, through the pen of Moses, gives a summary statement of the establishment of marriage, of what a marriage is. And here we come to our second point in verse 24. This is what God says through Moses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now there are three things that are being said here about what a marriage is. The first is the act of leaving. The man is to leave his father and his mother. Now, this doesn't mean that the woman is exempt from this, but it is specifically directed at the man because, again, the man is the head of the family. He's given the directive to make sure that this is carried out in the marriage relationship for both of them. 
And the idea of leaving the father and the mother, it's, it's not so much the idea of leaving in a geographical sense, although a lot of the times that also happens, where, you, you know, the, the son or the daughter, once they get married, they, they move out of the house, sometimes even countries or state or, or suburb or whatever. But the idea of leaving here, it's not so much in a geographical sense, but it's more the idea of a change in the relationship with the mother and the father. A change in that relationship. See, growing up as a, as a son or a daughter, we are dependent on our parents in many different ways. But with the coming on of marriage, there comes a change in the relationship with the parents. And we are no longer to be dependent on our parents. Now, this doesn't mean by leaving in the context of marriage that we should stop honoring our parents. Nor does it mean that we should refuse to provide for our parents in their old age. In fact, you want to read more about that. The Bible, in fact, encourages and tells us that we should look after our parents in their old age. You can look at that in Matthew 15, 3 to 9. So the idea of leaving, it's not an absolute abandonment of the parents. But it does mean that there is a relational change that is supposed to happen with the parents. One theologian said it this way, biblical leaving takes place on the inside, not on the outside. It is an internal act of abandoning a type of relational dependence that was once appropriate, but is now inappropriate and does not honor God, end quote. In fact, the relational dependence on the parents is now shifted to a God-honoring dependence on the spouse. You see, after the marriage, even the first priority and the first obligation will be for your spouse and not for your father or your mother. So that means if the husband doesn't like the wife's cooking, he doesn't go running back to his mother to get some good food, nor does he then air dirty laundry about his wife to his mother. As for the wife, maybe it's the, the first fight between the husband and wife. Or the, the husband and wife are trying to make a decision amongst themselves. And instead of uh, doing that amongst themselves, the, the wife goes running to the father or the mother. No, the husband and wife are to try and work it out themselves. They are not dependent on their parents anymore for their emotions and needs and, and whatever else. The husband and wife are to depend on each other. Parents, if you sense your son or your daughter, even after they're married, have this kind of dependence on you, then graciously send them back to their spouse. That is a loving thing for you to do. It has been said that the umbilical cord sometimes is not even cut after the marriage. 
And because of many and because many husbands and wives do not leave their parents in this biblical sense after marriage, the marriage relationship suffers significantly. I would even add, it's not just the parents. I, I, I suppose they, they talk, you know, God talks about parents here because before you get married, the parents are the most dependent people, the, the most close relationship, or at least it should be. But I would say it's not just, just the parents. The, you can draw the application even further out. It's even a change in the relationship with every other relationship you have even close friends. Again, for your emotional support and every other need, you are not to be dependent on your close friends. You may have been before your marriage, but after your marriage, it is not to be so. Your marriage relationship will only suffer if you continue to do that. It is not how God designed your marriage to thrive. But you say, why? I mean, why is it wrong to still be dependent and run to my parents or even my close friends for my various needs even after I get married? See, because instead of learning to be dependent on each other, the dependence is still on the outside of this relationship. And so that weakens the marriage. See, the, the relational bond is strong on the outside and not within the marriage. And in some cases, because these relationships outside are so strong, you know what happens? It pulls the marriage apart. So in marriage, there is to be a leaving of the parents, even Every and every other close relationship. The, the marriage relationship with the husband and the wife should be given the highest priority than any other kind of relationship. And I would even say, including children. Then we come to the next aspect of the marriage, which is cleaving to the wife. Look at verse 28 again. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now the word cleave or hold fast, as the ESV has it, literally means to stick like glue. That there is a strong bond between the husband and the wife. That there is a stickiness about the husband and the wife. It implies a bond that is so strong that it cannot be separated because it's stuck together like that. In fact, this term cleave or hold fast, it's, it's covenant language. In Deuteronomy 10.20, Moses uses the same term to remind the Israelites of their covenant loyalty to God. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 10.20. Moses says, you shall fear the Lord your God and you shall serve him and hold fast to him or cleave to him or stick to him, stick to God. And so using that same term here in Genesis 2, 
it is telling us that there's a covenant nature to this marriage bond as well. That there is a covenant bond and loyalty and commitment of the husband and the wife. The husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. There is that tight-knit covenant bond. That there is a permanence in this bond. That you are to be permanently stuck and joined to this person. And because this covenant bond is lifelong, Jesus says about marriage in Mark 10.9, he says this, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, what happens in marriage is that there is a commitment or a covenant made before God. And this covenant bond is for life. It's not just something for a few years. It is for life till death do us part. In fact, even in the marriage vows, the permanency of the marriage is upheld. When the person says, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. In other words, the, the person making the, is making a vow before God and in the presence of other witnesses and the church saying, no matter what happens in life, whether things go well or things don't go well, in sickness and in health, in prosperity and in poverty, Till death do us part, this is my lifelong commitment. This is a lifelong bond. And listen, the, the, the church, the, the witnesses that are there, when it's done and before the church, the, the church is then to help the couple live out their covenant and even hold them accountable to their marriage bond just like we are supposed to live out other areas of our Christian life in the care and the accountability of the church. And marriage is another aspect of that Christian life. And because God has instituted the marriage to be a lifelong bond, God hates it when a couple gets divorced. In Malachi 2.16, you know, God hates divorce so much that God compares divorce to an act of violence, where the strong bonds of a marriage are violently ripped apart. Yes, in extreme cases like adultery, as Matthew 19.9 says, or in the case of abandonment of the family, 1 Corinthians 7.15 and even abuse would also fall into this category. In such extreme cases, God makes an allowance for divorce. Though even in such cases, it's not mandated. And where there's repentance and forgiveness sought, even in these cases, every step should be taken to reconcile and repair the marriage relationship. But other than those few exceptions, those few allowances, those biblical grounds that God has given where it's merely an allowance, 
the marriage is seen to be a lifelong commitment to one another. So there's a leaving of the parents and every other relationship of that relational dependency. There's a holding fast to one another, a holding fast in covenant bond to the wife and the wife to the husband. And then thirdly, there's the becoming one flesh. Look at the last part of verse 28. It says, and they shall become one flesh. Now if holding fast or cleaving, it speaks of the activity, if it speaks of the, the, the commitment or the co- uh, covenant bond, then becoming one flesh speaks of the result that comes out of that bond. You see, as a result of the, the marriage commitment, the husband and wife are to become one. That there is to be a solidarity, a, a, a unity of the body and the soul between the husband and the wife. This oneness speaks of a fully shared life. Not just certain aspects of life, but fully shared life. A coming together physically and emotionally and and spiritually and even intellectually. See, this is the most exclusive relationship that God has designed. And what that means is that the husband and the wife should not have this kind of unity, should not have this kind of oneness, this kind of solidarity in any other relationship other than their spouse. Not even in the parent-child relationship has God designed this kind of oneness. One theologian writes about the oneness in marriage this way, quote, So in the one flesh union of marriage, all the boundaries between a man and woman fall away. And the married couple comes together completely, as long as they both shall live. In real terms, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us, building a new life together with one total everything. One story, one purpose, one reputation, one bed, one suffering, one budget, one family, and so forth. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. And it is this all-encompassing unity that sets the marriage apart as a marriage more profound than even the most intense friendship, end quote. He goes on to write, quote, friends have much in common But wise friends also have boundaries. They do not share everything. There is much much good in friendship, limited as it is. But what distinguishes marriage is the all-inclusive scope of its claims upon both the man and the woman. The two become one flesh 
one mortal life fully shared with total openness, total access, total solidarity for the rest of their earthly days, end quote. That's the oneness that is talked about here. In fact, even logically, this kind of oneness that is to take place between the husband and the wife is because, remember, the first woman, we saw this last week, the first woman was taken out of the flesh and the bone of the first man. So in marriage, the flesh and bone that was taken out comes together. There's a, there's, and therefore, when this flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone comes back, there needs to be this oneness. Because it was taken out of the first man, so it needs to come back and be one again. And that's why Genesis 2.24 begins with a, a therefore. That's the logical conclusion. Because the man was taken out of the flesh and bone of man, therefore the two then shall become one. Now, in this becoming one, there's, there's a bodily coming together, a, a sexual intimacy that is to be shared only within the marriage relationship. The husband is to give of himself to the wife, and the wife is to give of herself to the husband. 1 Corinthians 7, 3-4 makes this very clear when it says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So there is to be a sexual intimacy between the husband and the wife. And you are not to deprive each other of that. And what that also means is that there should not be a sexual intimacy of any sort outside the bounds of marriage with anyone other than your spouse. It is an exclusive, monogamous relationship. There shouldn't be multiple partners or any kind of aberration of that sort. And it also means that if you are not married, you should not engage in sexual intimacy with anyone. Regardless of whether you have a strong emotion for this other person, even if you are engaged to be married to this person, you are not to engage in sexual intimacy. Why? Because that other person is still not your spouse. You are still not married to that person. The sexual desires that God has given to you is to be enjoyed solely within the confines of the marriage bed. Now, I know this is obvious to, to us as Christians, but it needs to be emphasized in the kind of culture that we live in, that the marriage relationship 
and the sexual intimacy, while it is meant to be exclusive between the, the husband and the wife, it needs to be further emphasized that it is to be between the one man and the one woman who are married. It is not between a man and a man. It is not between a woman and a woman. It is exclusively between the one husband and the one wife who are married to each other. And regardless of what the world might say, this is how God has ordained the marriage relationship and the boundaries of sexual intimacy. But aside from just the, the coming together of the bodies within the, the marriage relationship, there's also a coming together of the souls, spiritually and emotionally, you know, where God has a central place in the marriage and the husband and wife are striving to serve the Lord together uh, to honor the Lord. Where the husband and wife are coming together to spend time reading God's word and praying together. Maybe even things like reading good Christian books together and having discussions about it and how to appropriate those things, those principles into their, their respective lives. And it's not just that, but it's even doing some fun things together, whatever that looks like for you as a couple, where you are enjoying each other's company and spending time together like that. There should be open communication regularly, even daily where possible, where each person knows the other person's heart. What are the, uh, what are the struggles and the temptations of your spouse? What encourages the other person? What discourages your spouse? What, what are the fears and, uh, and dreams of your spouse? And accordingly, as you know that about your spouse, you are supporting each other, encouraging each other from God's word, praying for each other, and pointing each other to Christ so that none of you are tempted to go the way of the world and dishonor the Lord in your marriage. See, what this means is that as husbands and wives, we need to invest time in each other as a husband and a wife with each other. We're not to be like sailing ships that just kind of pass through and every now and then make a connection. No, there needs to be an intentionality in the marriage relationship. We need to set aside time to spend time with each other. You know, think of, you know, what are the things that you can avoid so that is preventing your relationship than having this oneness? What are the things that you need to get rid of? And get rid of those things. Let me tell you, by being passive in your marriage, nothing will happen in your marriage. 
If a person simply thinks, oh, if I just get married and everything will just work out well, they are gravely mistaken and they're in for a huge disappointment. Marriage requires active work. And if you neglect it, it will suffer and it will not be the kind of marriage that God intends it to be. You know, last week I... I spoke about singles and about the need to be the, the best marriageable person. But you know what? It doesn't stop after you get married. No, it doesn't. In fact, it, it only heightens the need. We are still to strive to be the best spouse that God has intended us to be. Still spending time knowing God. Still sacrificially serving each other. Still looking for ways to improve our communication with each other. And even maintaining a good hygiene and whatnot for each other. And husbands, particularly as the head of the family, we need to take the initiative. Take the lead in investing time and energy into your marriage and do not let it flounder. You know, I, I, I understand there can be seasons where it becomes difficult to set aside time and focused energy particularly on the marriage. You, you know, sometimes it's a busy season of work. Sometimes it might be some kind of illness. Sometimes it's a newborn baby, and I'm going through that right now. But overall, as husbands and wives, we must, absolutely must, set aside time and invest into our marriages to get to know each other's hearts and support each other for the sake of honoring the Lord which always results in then, in return, being a blessing for us as well, for the marriage to be a blessing as well, as we seek to honor the Lord. You know, by the way, aside from the fact that the woman was taken out from the flesh and bone of man, and therefore they should become one, did you know that there's an even bigger theological reason as to why there needs to be this kind of oneness in the marriage? See, the bigger reason there needs to be this oneness in marriage is because it reflects God. Remember, God is three persons, but he is one in essence. There's a supreme oneness and a unity in the Godhead. And so too in the marriage when two individuals, the husband and the wife, when they live in this kind of oneness, they are reflecting the triune God who is three persons and yet one who lives in supreme oneness. And when we seek to reflect God's character this way, God is honored, and guess what? 
our marriage is blessed as well. Husbands, as, as, as the leader of the home, the, the wife as the helper and the one who submits to the hu- husband, it is not meant to take away from this oneness. It's meant as a way to bring out this oneness even more. And just, just before I move on to the next point, I just want to say this. Husbands, the, the idea of leadership, it is not domineering and putting your wife down. That's not the idea of headship or leadership by any measure of uh, what the Bible says. But it's the idea of serving your wife in such a way that she is propped up, where she blooms like a lovely flower under your headship, under your leadership, rather than wilts away under your leadership. So as we seek to honor God's character, in this oneness, God is honored and it blesses our marriage. Now this section in Genesis 2 come to a close with a comment on the condition of the couple in the marriage. And we come to our last point, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. There's really a contrast being made here. That even though the, the man and his wife were naked, they were not ashamed. Because you would normally associate nakedness with shame. In fact, in the Old Testament, the idea of nakedness is very often associated with shame or humiliation. Amos 2.16 where it says, And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Micah 1.8, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. So when it says in Genesis 2.25 that Adam and Eve were naked and they were not ashamed, the idea here is not just that they were physically naked, although they were physically naked, it's certainly there, that idea is there, but it's even more than that. It's the idea that there were no barriers between Adam and his wife, that there was Uh, as one commentator put it, that there was a clear transparency between them with nothing to hide. So the nakedness here is not just referring to just physical nakedness, but there is also the idea of innocence. That Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, they were innocent. It's a picture of openness and trust. That because they were innocent, because Adam and Eve had not yet experienced sin and evil, they felt no shame or guilt. See, they were untouched by sin. So what that meant was there were no past sins that they had to get through. They had no evil thoughts or evil desires even in the present as they came together. 
There was absolutely nothing to hide or cover from each other. They were completely innocent, not knowing evil and sin. All they knew experientially at this point was the goodness of God. They had not experienced evil, and because they did not know evil that way, they had no need to, be, to feel shame. In fact, they wouldn't even get the idea of shame because they hadn't experienced evil and sin. And so Adam and Eve are open and transparent in every way and had no cause for shame when they came together. See, this was the, the, the condition or the state of the first man and the woman when they first got married. It, it's a picture of, of perfect harmony between the man and the woman in the first marriage as they enjoy the, the blessing and favor of God as they live under his word and his rule. It's a picture of the wondrous perfection of marriage that God first established. I mean, imagine no sin between the husband and wife. Absolutely no sin, no evil desire, no evil sinful motives or anything of that sort. Nothing to hide. Everything is innocent. Everything is good. It's a picture of absolute beauty. It's a picture of how beautiful this first marriage was. But you know what? As we will get to the next chapter, when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, this beautiful harmony was broken. They were separated from God, and there was division even between the man and the woman. And now for us who are living in this post-Genesis 3 world, in this sin-cursed world, we don't experience this kind of, or at least this degree of oneness and harmony in marriage like when Adam and Eve first got married, at least in the way it's described in Genesis 2.25. Often, Within our marriages, there's strife and there's difficulties. As husbands and wives, we fail each other regularly. So then, how can we ever have any hope in our marriages, you ask? I would say this, because of what Jesus has done. You see, if you're a Christian, you know that Jesus has carried your sin on his shoulders, that he has paid the price and borne the wrath of your unfaithfulness as a spouse. And as you confess your sin, and as you repent of your sin, there is forgiveness offered at the foot of the cross. And this should then motivate you to love your spouse and offer forgiveness to your spouse when the, your spouse sins against you. When you look at your spouse and, and treat your spouse in the same way as God has loved you and forgiven you in Christ, in the same way God has treated you, you are to treat your spouse. See, there's 
no other way you can build your marriage in this sin-cursed world. Absolutely no other way. You can try it all you want, but you will not build up your marriage because it is not functioning in the way that God has designed the marriage to be. But if, if you follow the way of the world, of if you think by your own strength you'll be able to have a wonderful marriage, you are gravely mistaken. It is only through Christ that you will be able to enjoy some of the beauty and the wonder of the marriage relationship. Only as we keep coming back to the cross of Jesus Christ and confess and repent of our sins will we receive forgiveness and even offer forgiveness to one another in our marriages. And we will begin to experience the joy of a married life. And here's the other wonderful thing. As we build our marriages on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of reflecting Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church. I mean, that's what we read this morning in Ephesians 5 in our Bible reading. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting from Genesis 2, verse 32. This mystery is profound, meaning this was not previously known, not previously revealed, but now it's revealed with the coming of Christ. And the mystery is this, that this refers to Christ and the church. You see, when we as a husband or wife live according to God's way, depending on what Jesus has done on the cross for us, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, and we live this way in our marriages, we are able to reflect God and in the way of how God has treated us in Christ. You know, I, I love how one commentator put it, quote, he says this, God created marriage in order that we might understand the most important of spiritual relationships. That is why Jesus is portrayed to us in the Bible as the great, as the great bridegroom and husband of the church. It is why we who believe on him are portrayed as his bride. How are we to communicate this greatest of all relationships if we who are Christians do not demonstrate it in our marriages? On the other hand, if we demonstrate it there, then the world around will have a real life illustration of how God works toward us in Christ to bring us to faith and save us from our sins, end quote. So when we base our marriages on the gospel of Jesus Christ and live accordingly, we are given the privilege of reflecting the gospel then through our marriages for everyone to see and glorifying God this way. Now I know some of you have had terrible marriages and you are still bearing some of the damage and the consequences of that marriage 
but it is part of living in a sin-cursed world, and I have no doubt whatsoever that God's grace will continue to sustain you as you depend on Him. But I pray that your experience of a bad marriage does not take away from the beauty of what God has ordained in a marriage relationship. That marriage is in fact a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing, a thing to be enjoyed even, and that it is a true gift of God. For those of you who might have the gift of singleness, you are the exception. And you get to serve the Lord without much distractions and praise God for that. For those of you who are single and desire to be married, I would say continue to seek the Lord and, and grow in Christ-likeness and honor Him in every area so that when that wonderful other half comes into your life, you are able to be the kind of spouse that God intends you to be. And for those of us who are married, let's invest time and energy into our marriages with God and the gospel of Jesus Christ at the, as the very foundation of our marriages so that we have the privilege then of reflecting the gospel through our marriages and honoring God this way. And ultimately, that will also be for our good. Let me just say this and close. All of us who are believers no matter what season or phase of life you are in, as we live in this sin-cursed world, striving to honor the Lord in our respective places, in our respective relationships, let us then long for the day when we, as the bride of Christ, will be joined together with our perfect bridegroom, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes for us. Let us long for that day. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for the gift of marriage that you have given to mankind. And although living in a sin-cursed world, we experience so much of pain and strife. There is still hope, again, because of you. There is still hope because of what Christ has done on the cross. And we do pray for those of us who are married that we would take this seriously to invest in our marriages, to not be like sailing ship passing through and just floating through life but we would truly invest in our marriages so that we live in that true oneness that you call us to live by in body and in soul so that we get to reflect you, so that we get to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we be able to give you glory even in our marriages and be a blessing to others. Father, we pray for those who are single and desire to get married 
Father, we pray that you would continue to grow them. And even as they see the goodness of marriage, that, they would, that you would grant the desires of their heart, even as they keep themselves faithful to you. For those who've been tainted and marred by, by marriage. Father, I pray that the, the sweet word, that, that your sweet word, your eternal comforting word, has brought some comfort to them. Realizing that marriage is indeed good as we live according to your ways. Father, let us all continue to strive to be faithful to you. And even more so as we realize marriage is ultimately a picture of the supreme reality of Christ and the church. Let us long for Christ as he comes as our perfect bridegroom and as we will be joined to him. Let us long for his return and help us to be faithful to him. For it is in his name we pray this morning. Amen.